welcome everyone to the Spoken Nerd, the podcast about database technology. I'm your host, Connor McDonald, and I've got a special guest with me here today. There's very few people out there that can throw down with community experts at user group conferences, whilst at the same time strolling into a meeting with Larry Ellison and putting him in his place, while co-presenting with Juan Luiza at major events around the world. So without further ado, welcome to my podcast guest, Maria Colgan. Hey, Connor. Thanks so much for having me. I will note to listeners that we were 20 minutes into recording this podcast, and then the muggins here uh, forgot to press record. So if you hear Maria somewhat sounding boring with the tone of questions, you'll know that she's heard them all 20 minutes ago, and we're going through them all again. I apologize in advance to listeners. Uh, that is entirely my own fault. I will start with Maria. Is How was your Christmas break, given that we're recording this in January? It was fantastic. Thank you. It was my husband's turn to pick our Christmas destination. We alternate. I'm very predictable. I always pick Ireland. Someone would say that might be my Catholic guilt or my love of rainy weather. But this year was my husband's choice. And so we went to Fiji. I have to admit, because we've recorded 20 minutes, I was going to go, let me guess. Did you go to Fiji? I'll do my best to to play along. In terms of Christmases, was it strange having a hot Christmas? I assume Fiji was pretty warm this time of year. It is pretty warm this time of year. For me, definitely. It doesn't really give you the Christmas vibes, but it is a lot of fun. And it is interesting to see the other side of the world's version of Christmas, you know, with sun and surf and all of that. But yeah, it's it's difficult to get. You know, Santa did come to breakfast with us and we did get gifts, but it was very unusual. I'm not going to lie. It's funny in Australia, even though we have generally a, a very hot Christmas, in fact, it was it was very, very warm this Christmas in Perth. Generally in Australia, people still do many of the similar Christmas things. There's a Christmas turkey and all that kind of stuff. So you're having a hot meal generally on a hot day and the like. Was it the same in Fiji or did they, did they celebrate Christmas with that sort of Westerner feel or is it more their own thing? There seemed to be a little bit of everything for everybody. So there were a lot of Australians with us in the resort, uh, as well as English, which I was kind of surprised. And so Christmas dinner was quite a large affair, multiple courses with a little bit of something for everybody. So the huge seafood tower for the Australians, for those that would celebrate that way, all the way to turkey and ham for the more traditional, what I would consider Western or English Irish Christmas turkey and ham roast dinner. Yeah. Certainly my experience of living in the UK was the English are certainly sun chasers. I remember going to, I think, Tenerife and there's all this wonderful culture there, but yeah, you get to your hotel and it says, you know, tonight, Manchester City versus Everton. And, and while you're drinking your Guinness at the, uh, at the pub, the, the, the English have, have made their mark on, on holiday destinations around the world. As I normally do when I have podcast guests on there, like yourself and others from Oracle, I go trawling through LinkedIn. LinkedIn stalking is probably the, the, the less politically correct word. I've made the same mistake I made with Nigel Bayless when I interviewed him and Dom Giles. And in fact, I've picked people with the world's most boring LinkedIn profile because I click on Maria Kolg and it says view experiences and it says works at Oracle. And then there's always that humiliation when it says start of that Oracle 19 years before you did. So you've been there for a fair while. I suppose the question is, is what got you into Oracle at the first place? If I go down to the very last one, it says member of the Server Technology Performance Group 1996 in Dublin. So what got you started at Oracle? What was the first grab on you to go to join a company like Oracle? A mate of mine from college who's also still working at Oracle's sad but true for both of us, got a job first and recommended I interview at Oracle. And so I had a choice, believe it or not, straight out of uni to join 
the Apple Mac team or to join the OS2 team. And since he had joined the OS2 team, I, I chose that one. Now, good or bad decision? Yeah. <laughs> There's no future in Max. No future in Max. Yeah. OS2 is going to take niche. over the world. Very niche. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be on that team. Yeah. Now, on your LinkedIn synopsis, it says, I am what some people would call a database nerd, having spent my entire career deeply involved in enhancing the performance of databases and applications, most notably SQL query tuning. Just honing on the database nerd part. I'll broaden that out to IT nerd. We always are an IT nerd. We are always interested in computing going back to childhood. Yeah, pretty much anything to do with maths, science, computing. I definitely had a big interest in that. And when my dad brought home the first computer out of the four of us, I was probably the most fascinated with it. Back in the good old days, there wasn't any games or anything like that. So if you did want to play games, it came with a massive manual that had hundreds of pages of code that you had to laboriously type in. But if you did, then you could get games like Pong to work and, and stuff like that. And to me, that was fascinating. I didn't quite understand what all the code was supposed to do, but if you typed it in just right, then a game would come out. And so, yeah, that was my first foray into computer science. I admit that was a, a similar experience to myself in that you and I are probably of the generation where it was later on in our childhood that advancements such as disk drives and tapes would come in where you could actually get your computer program on a cassette tape and that would save you all that that typing in. But I agree there was that enormous feeling of personal reward that you'd you'd spent your Sunday typing in page after page from some blasted computer magazine that said if you type it in. And I suppose that's that's the first exercise in debugging. It was never about actually understanding how the code worked. It was like my program didn't run somewhere on page 37 of that damn magazine when it said peak i typed poke or, or whatever because typically they're in basic or maybe a little bit of assembler do you remember what that first device was i think it was amstrad i think that's what it was called the very first computer and ours was a fancy i don't know it had a keyboard and the monitor and the computer so it, it was that setup but it was no windows machine <laughs> let's put it that way that came much later on uh but yeah, that very first one had a little typical terminal screen on it, you know, dark screen with the green flashy cursor yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I do. I think I, I can honestly say I think you were spoiled with a flashing cursor. My, my first computer my father brought home that a friend given to him was a, a Sinclair ZX80. For those of my generation will remember that's a 1K RAM machine. And so for large programs, you had to run them with only half the screen because what would happen there is some of the screen would be actually used for memory. So no such thing as a flashing cursor for me. The screen was static. You would, it was like, I suppose the days of mainframe terminals where you would type stuff away and then you'd hit a key and then the screen would show you what you'd typed and then you'd be, you could move on to the next line. And that's why everything was static. You could play things like tic-tac-toe or nim, but I never managed to, managed to get to the dizzying heights of Pong on my <laughs> Sinclair ZX80. Uh, but I have to admit, I graduated, I think when I was about 11 or 12, to a, a Commodore Big 20 and then a Commodore 64 once my father just worked out that the only way he could get any interaction with his son was to put more computing devices in front of him. Was it like that for you? Were you hooked? Were you hooked on computers the moment that happened or was it just like a, a, a sort of a, a hobby? That was the first taste. And then when we got to secondary school, for those Americans in the audience, middle school, there was a computer lab in the secondary school and we were able to do computing one class a week in this where they would teach you a whole bunch of stuff. And they were BBC Acorns that we were working on there, very advanced technology. But that really got me started and got me interested in that and the idea 
of perhaps doing that in college and, and making a career out of it? I remember in what, what I would call primary school, I'm not sure what, they, what we call it around the world, but the, my first years of school, the school had a computer. And so what would happen was if you were lucky enough to be good in your in the weekly maths test, if you got the best in the class, you would spend an hour with the computer. Probably it's funny how in terms of carrot versus stick analogies with donkeys, carrot obviously works because I got very interested in mathematics simply because it was all about could I spend an hour on the computer each week at the school computer? But yeah, in high school, or well, I think middle school as you referred to it, we had similar things where we started to get a few more computers in the school. I think we even maybe had a class on it. They were all Apple IIs. That was the first experience of color on a computer. I think it had 16 colors and like that just blew my mind. It was all characters. There's no graphics, but the fact that it had color it was just um, amazing. In fact, the first, the first ever game I typed into one of those computers was a game called Snakebite which now every phone has, the one where a snake chases the little thing, you know, like even the early phones, which are just LCDs. Had it, yeah, yeah. I was almost furious when I first saw that every person with a phone had access to this game that I'd spent days typing in on my computer back, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Life is so unfair. <laughs> but anyway, cruising through the LinkedIn, I can see you're a distinguished product manager, master product manager, but I'm scrolling all the way down to the bottom here to get to 1996, member of the Server Technology Performance Group in Dublin. Now, you and I share a common heritage. Uh, my father was Irish and you were um, born in Dublin. Oh, sorry, you were born in Ireland. Uh, whereabouts, <laughs> you can see we've recorded this part before. Let me throw this question out to you, Maria. Whereabouts were you born in Ireland? Amazingly enough, I'm from Dublin. Yeah, no, I'm there born and go. raised in Dublin. Uh, yeah. Okay, my, my father was born in Sligo, which is, if you don't know Ireland anyone, it's on the West Coast. Dublin's on the East Coast or on the east of Ireland. And But he lived most of his life in Cork, which is down south. Have you travelled the extent of Ireland? Have you done a sort of the, the drive around the country that a lot of people do? I have. Having a foreigner, i.e. an Australian as a husband, we've done quite a bit of the touristy trips around Ireland. We would have done quite a bit as kids as well. We would vacation a lot up in Donegal, which is be the northwest. And I spent many summers in Cork in the Gaeltacht, learning Irish down in Cork. It's one of the areas where they still speak, natively speak Irish. And because we were forced to do it in school, you would go to the Gaeltacht for a month each year to try and improve the old Irish. Yeah. So it was compulsory in schools in that days, was it? Oh, yeah. And you had to pass it too. In order to graduate from school all the way through primary into secondary school, you had to keep Irish and you had to pass. If you failed it, you failed school. You had to redo the year to, to finish school. I remember a famous story from Australia where many, many years ago in Australia's far less multicultural times, they used to have a thing called the White Australia Policy where you could be tested this, this is basically more a much more racist time back in sort of 100 years ago where to emigrate to Australia, you could be tested on things. And really it was used to keep Australia white 100 years ago, which was you know much to our embarrassment. But the white Australia policy, you could be tested in any European language on arrival as a way of getting in. There was a political activist who was coming out to Australia to cause problems and could speak every European language. And they tested him in Gaelic, and that's how they stopped him from coming. So uh, it's good that you learnt it, you know, if you ever want to be an activist and, and you live 100 years ago. But yeah, we've got some shameful past things in Australia. Returning to Ireland, you mentioned going out to see some of the places in Ireland. And certainly when I used to go to Ireland, I was always blown away by the greenery and, and also, I suppose, the quietness of so many places. It, it did feel like sort of a bit like time travel, so many places. In fact, when I used to go to visit my Uncle John in Mohill, I would say, how do I find your house? And he would say, well, the moment you get to the city limits, just knock on the first door you see and say, where's John's house? And they'll point to it. 
And similarly, when I'd say, how do I send you a postcard? He would say, just write John in Mohill, just off Main Street. And somehow these things would get there. I suppose, can you explain to me, because I'm, I'm struggling here, with that sort of idea of Ireland in my head, how come Oracle and, and so many other IT companies went absolutely nuts in Ireland back in the 90s? Every big company I could think of had a massive office in Ireland, and obviously Oracle did. I'm sort of confused. Why, why did Ireland become this hub of, of IT? It was for a couple of reasons. I mean, you had a really young, well-educated workforce that were also cheap. So let's make that clear. Economically wise, they called it the Celtic Tiger had started there in the 90s where they got this massive influx of large international companies like Oracle, Intel, Dell, Apple, everybody came there and they came for a number of reasons. One was the well-educated young workforce. The other was more economic reasons. So there were fantastic corporate tax laws in Ireland where they were basically able to operate nearly tax-free. And on top of that, the EU had just brought in regulations that said, if you manufacture within the EU, then you can ship goods all around the EU tax-free or tariff-free. So that whole free market was, was kicking off. So they all needed some kind of placeholder in the EU to say, we manufacture there. Now, it turns out some of them really exploded, like Apple has a massive place there. Intel just continues to add, they're not far from my parents, continues to add to their fabric there, including Oracle. So we would, you know, all those lovely tapes and eventually CDs with the Oracle software, that was all done in Dublin. And then the development center kind of got added on to that. Because I have to admit, when I lived in the UK in the late 90s and early 2000s, I remember I bought a Gateway PC. Gateway was a big manufacturing those days and everything arrived always everything always arrived from dublin that the gateway got replaced with the dell laptop and that arrived from dublin everything always arrived from ireland it's funny actually recently i bought a can of beer a japanese beer called sapporo just at my local bottle shop and i spun it around and in terms of companies being based in ireland this one said brewed in canada by the guinness company <laughs> and i'm going how how is this a japanese beer that's like but i the, the, the joy of a multi, the multinational world. So it says here, what are you in LinkedIn? Yep. So 1996, member of the server technology performance group. What was the version of Oracle back in 96? What was, what was the version you were working on inside the company? So yeah, when I graduated, I was porting 7.3 onto OS2, which really just meant you had to run Aura test, which is our internal test suite, make sure that you could start up the binaries and run these tests. And if they didn't pass, then you had to go in and debug the code. And just for listeners out there, that proves to you that from at least, well, what, 30, 40 years ago, Oracle has been committed to testing its products thoroughly. All you people out there on Twitter just slagging us off saying we don't test it, I'll have you know that go back 30 years, 40 years, we had Aura test, and now that thing has evolved to billions upon billions of test cases that we run through. So don't give us any hassle about that. This is proof. We got proof right from the source that we've been testing for a long time. So don't give us any grief. So that was 7.3 was when I began, but I didn't stay in OS2 product line very long before I realized it was not for me. And that's when I joined the performance team. But yeah, it was 7.3. Well, let's face it. I think worldwide in any company or any customer user space, people realized maybe OS2 wasn't for them. <laughs> And figured, figured they should move on. I miss OS2. I, I used to like OS2. I think I was when I was chatting with Dom on the podcast, we, we both waxed lyrical about the, the beauty of OS2 over its counterparts in those days. But of course, the, the world has, has moved on. 
So if you're in the server technology group, did that lead straight into Optimizer? Did you move from there into the Optimizer or did you with some hops in between? No. So yeah, there were definitely some hops in between. So what happened was they started a real world performance team. I'm sure you've known those guys, Mike Hallis and Andrew Holsworth and Graham Wood. All of these guys were in, well, not Mike at that time, but Andrew and Graham were running this team in the US called the Real World Performance Team. And they would do, at the time, industry benchmarks as well as customer benchmarks to test our software against all of our competitors. And they were looking to open a European branch of that. And they put up a, a flyer in the canteen. This was back when Oracle was one of the cool kids and we got free lunch in the canteen, like all the startups do now uh, in Dublin. And I remember seeing that. And at the time you needed something like five years of experience with Oracle and SQL and all the rest, but I had about five months, but I was desperate to get out of product lines. And so I applied and thanks very much to two people who both my manager, my immediate manager and his manager, a chap called Joe Gallagher, a lovely American who was running the development center in Dublin at the time took a risk and said, oh, we'll give her a go, see how she gets on. She's desperate enough to to want it. So That's cool. I'll just for younger listeners, a flyer is a piece of paper with some writing on it. Um, <laughs> but but it is that funny thing where like, can you imagine nowadays someone saying, yeah, I saw a flyer in the canteen. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I suppose now it would be, I saw a message on a Slack channel or whatever, but yes, it, it was something pinned to the board. I have to admit my, my local supermarket still does flyers for looking for tradies and people to mow lawns and, and stuff like that. It's funny you mentioned Mike Hallis. He's still at Oracle and we have an internal Q&A forum called Einstein where people inside the company pose their questions about performance and all sorts of other things. And Mike's certainly one of the most active on there. He, whenever the tough questions come out, you know, Mike emerges from, I'd imagine, his hilltop mansion and, you know, like an Oracle saying, no, no pun intended, here, here is some wisdom of someone with 40 years in the game. So yeah, Mike's a, a very sharp guy and it's good to have him in, internally still. When you moved to the Real World Performance Group, did that coincide with your move to the USA or did that come later? It was kind of twofold. So I moved out of product lines and into the performance team in Dublin first. And I did about 18 months there before I got the opportunity. Andrew came over. We'd been doing a big benchmark for one of the large telcos in Europe. And so there were multiple of us involved because back in the day, we weren't a hardware company. We were a software company. And so when these big tenders would come out from customers, we'd have to partner with a hardware company. We'll run Oracle on Sun and somebody else was running Oracle on IBM and somebody else was doing it at HP. And so there was multiple of us involved, some from the US, some from, Europe, from the European team doing these benchmark with these different partners. And so I got to work quite closely with the US team and Andrew was kind enough to ask me if I wanted to relocate. And, you know, the usual thing that you tell your parents when you're emigrating, I'll just go for a year. I'll get lots of experience from working with Andrew and Graham and all these names that I'd only ever really seen in the code or, you know, seen in some of the educational stuff white papers at the time. It wasn't videos or anything good that you get nowadays. It was all these white papers you had to read about weight events. And so I'll go work with them for a year and come back with all this great experience. So, you know, keep my bedroom. I'll be back. Uh, That's right. I was the same when I moved to um, the UK in 99 because of the Y2K. It was all like, well, there's going to be plenty of work and I have an Irish passport. And so there won't be any dramas getting, you know, in terms of work issues. And yet late 98 moved over there late 2003 came home 
And, and even that was purely such that I'm to, to have children. In fact, funny story, my uh, now ex-wife and I had planned to stay in the UK for a, a lot longer. But when we came to having children, we met up with some friends in London and they had a toddler and we really went met them to sort of see what living with a toddler was like because we had obviously no skills and no experience. And we went down to Hyde Park and the toddler was would not stop crying and we couldn't work out why. And eventually our good friend said, oh, I think this might, she might be a bit freaked out. This might be the first time we've ever been on grass. And at that point, I thought both Jillian and myself looked at each other and we said, you know, we might go home to Australia to have children. <laughs> and so no, no, no offense intended to any English listening audiences. Maybe they were just an outlier. But yes, it was uh, the, the fact that a toddler had not experienced grass was somewhat alarming to us in Australia. <laughs> I, I take your points and it's so easy to move to somewhere and, and then it, be, it yeah. becomes home. So moving from real world performance into the role of product manager, how does that evolution take place? Would you consider that a natural evolution or was it more of a case of customers start having that greater hooks into companies, which I think has always been a good thing. You know, companies used to be, you would deliver software and that would be it. But now you start again, that thing of actually having feedback with customers as opposed to just with a sales organization. Was that a natural evolution or something you pursued? No, no, it was very natural because it, when we were doing these benchmarks, right, we would be at different benchmark centers. So down the road at Sun, which is now Facebook, their campus, or whether it was up in Poughkeepsie in upstate New York, where IBM had their big place, Dan and Cupertino with HP, wherever we were, one of the product managers for whatever area of the database we were showcasing would normally either meet with the customer there at the hardware center or we'd go up to Oracle and they'd meet with them and kind of give them the bigger story. Because oftentimes they give us a very uh, narrow test case that they were interested in proving you could deliver this part of their workload, but to give them the whole spiel on Oracle and, and developing this relationship. And after the benchmark was done, my interaction with that customer would end. So for six weeks, we were best buddies and I was obsessed with this company and their what they needed to do. And then after that, I never really got to follow up where the product managers did. They, they continued that relationship. And they didn't have to travel to some of the less desirable locations around the country, let's just say, and sit in server rooms for weeks on end. So that's, I kind of, it was an off the cuff remark to George Lumpkin, who at the time was running the data warehousing and SQL execution product management team about when were you ever going to let me be a product manager? And he said, all you needed to do was ask. I can't poach. But now that you've brought it up, <laughs> let's chat. So that's how it started. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's funny you mentioned going around doing all these joint benchmarks with various IT companies. It, of course, behooves me at this point in the podcast to say, if only there was a company that would have hardware and software engineered together. <laughs> Here we go. He's, he's, got, he's got the corporate line in. Hopefully that gets me some sponsorship from Oracle HQ, throw, throw some money down the line. No doubt such an overt insertion of Oracle brand language into the podcast has probably got you gagging a little bit in your mouth. So we'll take a moment here to pause. In the next episode, I'll talk to Maria about her evolution of the role into probably what she's most known for over the years. That is the optimizer product manager. We'll see you all then. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The music credit goes to Zanman from Pixabay Music. <laughs>